The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. just a few moments that you were born into the most prominent nation of all the earth matter of fact amongst that nation you were born also to one of the most prominent families of all the earth your lineage your heritage was one that had always been noted had always been accepted and respected because of that, that proverbial silver spoon being in your mouth, you had access to the highest and greatest educations that could be offered. You spent years, perhaps, if not most of your life, to a certain point at least, studying at the feet of some of the greatest men who would ever stand and teach on any subject. Because of that, and as a result of your education and all of your family lineage and such as that, in addition to that, you also had risen to the top in social circles. Matter of fact, some of these social events and some of these social clubs, if you want to call it that, you had become the head and president, the chief among those things. Everywhere that you went, you were recognizable and sometimes even feared. It seems like a person like you would have it all. I want to tell you, there was a man similar to that his name was Paul. He was of the greatest nation. He came forth from the greatest lineage, greatest bloodline and family. He had risen to the top in education and many social places and areas of life. And yes, he was feared and respected by many. Extremely knowledgeable and applied that knowledge in a certain way that he thought was right. But in Philippians chapter 3, just behind telling us about all of that, he said, I counted that all as dung literally there rubbish or trash he goes on to explain to us that he counted that as dung he gave all of that away but he gave it up for a very certain cause a certain person as a matter of fact his name was Jesus we call the Christ he gave that up what would it take if you had risen such as he had been born in a similar way and set down a similar path as he was, what would it take or have taken for you to give that up? Probably an awful lot. A better question is this. Being that we are, most of us at least in this room, children of God's, have we given it all up for God? If it cost you your career, if it costs you your, your education, if it costs you your family, if it costs you your friends, if it costs you everything you had ever obtained and considered just to live for Jesus, would you and could you do that? We should. Friends, Paul gave it up. Every faithful child of God, male nor female, from the generations on from Christ, have had to give up a part of their lives and should just to serve Jesus. I want to take you to a text this evening, and I think it'll be very recognizable to you. I try to go to texts that are familiar. Go with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. 
We're going to base our entirety, the entirety, I should say, of our discussion on just a few verses. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at three verses, that's all. Three verses that are very, very familiar to you in Romans chapter 1. And I believe each of these lead us and give us some insight. Of course, I, I remind you again, all these things are written by the inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16. The reason for that is because of 17. So it will be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. These things are inspired. But as God chose these men and inspired them to pen these words, such as he did Paul, such as is the penman of the book of Romans, he also used their mind and their manners to do that. And so whatever we read upon these pages, yes, they're the words of God. Yes, it's from the mind of God. But as we read that, understand he used the man's mind also to express those things in a way that we could understand. And I think Paul gives us three things here, and they're going to be balanced on those famous three I am statements. And each of these three things are going to lead our points and guide us in what we talk about. And each of these three things are probably areas most likely, I know in my life, perhaps in yours, there are areas in which if we're going to, quote, give it all up for God, these are the areas where we're going to have the most difficulty. These are the areas where we're going to prepare our minds and our hearts so that we can be sure we have or at least will. Notice the reading here, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Paul says this, For I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you, though in Rome also. For I am not, this will be the most familiar to you, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now there's much more to this text, there's much more to this chapter, I don't want to deny that, there's much more to this book, there's much more to the Word of God. But let's focus on those three statements. First of all, he said, I am debtor. Then he also said, I am ready. And then finally he says, I am in the antithesis, I am not ashamed. If you divide these up, and I'll give you some points to lead your mind. First of all, in verse 14 when he says, I am debtor, what he says is, I gave it up and I became faithful, here's the key words, faithful to the obligations of the gospel. You see, when we obey the gospel, even prior to that, especially once we do, we are obligated to God. We've signed a contract, in a sense, with God that says, however you want me to live, according to your word, as I find it there, however you want me to live, I'm going to live. Whatever you desire for me to do, I'm going to do. And you know as well as I do, the price, that, the price that Christ paid on the cross is a great price. The way that he shed his blood on the cross through crucifixion and the purpose for which he said it was our salvation, that within itself makes us indebted to at least God. But that's not what Paul's discussing here. To read it more carefully, he says, I am debtor to whom, Paul? He said, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and the unwise. If you divide that up, there's two groups. There's the Greeks, there's the barbarian. The Greeks are the wise, the barbarians are the unwise. What Paul says here in one sense, to bring it on down to our thinking, Paul says, I am indebted to the in and out and the down and out. I'm indebted to the rich, I'm indebted to the poor. I'm indebted to the intellects, I'm indebted to the ignorant and you and I are in the same position because Christ died for us because we're obedient through his word to him we're indebted to repay not that we ever can not that we can ever desert, deserve but we're indebted to repay that not just toward God but toward every person we meet in this life let me show you three things 
When you think about being faithful to the obligation of the gospel, first of all, it comes to my mind, we need to be indebted to those who were behind us. You say, what do I mean by that? What do you mean by that? What I'm talking about is think about the men of the past. You think about not just Jesus who died, but you think about Peter and Paul and John and Andrew. You think about the great preachers that came about in the first century. Many of them were called apostles. Others were just preachers of the gospel. Others were just those who were disciples of Christ, that is, followers slash learners of Christ. You think about all those men who stood, and as many of the apostles did, gave their lives so that you and I could still exist as a church. He said, no, wait a minute, the providence of God would have kept the church to remain anyway. Yes, yes, and the word should not pass away, and the gate should not prevail against it. Yes, I understand that about the church and about God's word, but at the same time, if it were not for these men standing for, what, for which they stood and paying the price which they paid, what would the chances be? And it's not a matter of chance necessarily, but just from our thinking. What would the chances be that I would know what I know about God? If there were no Paul, if Paul, during his persecution days as Saul, if he had been slain himself, what would we have? Well, probably 13 books of our New Testament would be absent, if not 14, including Hebrews, perhaps. What if Peter had not been a part of this thing? Well, we would be missing books of 1 and 2 Peter. We'd be missing the book of Acts. What about John? The three epistles, the one letter. The gospel, we'd be missing so much. Friends, I live for Christ every day, for Christ, no doubt, but I live for Christ every day also because I'm living indebted to those that were behind me, those that came about in time, those who preceded me in my life in His existence in human form. I'm indebted to those people. By the same measure, you move it into more modern times because we ought to consider whomever it was who taught you or taught your parents, or taught your grandparents, or was a friend to them, some of those, or who taught your friend, who eventually taught you, you're indebted to all of those also. Friends, I was blessed in my life. I still am. But I was one of the most blessed individuals in my life in the fact that I was born to the loins and the fruit of John and Sharon Merle, who were members of the church before I became in existence who had come from generations on my father's side of five and six generations of elders and preachers of the Lord's church. I'm indebted to those men. And so because of that, I have to be faithful to the obligation of the gospel. Those that are before me, secondarily, those that are beside me. Do you really appreciate the people who sat on the pews next to you, behind you, in front of you right now? Do you understand the prices that some of these people, maybe you're one of them, have paid to be here? I said Paul gave it all up. Yes, he had to. Many of you have given up your families. You've given up your friends. You've given up your, your job. I, hey, I, I was fired one time for it. I'm not bragging. That's just the way life falls out sometimes. In the secular world, someone besides you has paid a price. Someone beside you has labored and spent time studying God's Word and assisted you with that somewhere. Some deacon has served this congregation and you're, you're a benefactor of it. 
Some elder has served and, and they have made sure to hold the line according to truth and to try to be sure that you're fed, fed regularly and fed properly. As the scriptures say, they watch for your souls. Yes, I'm debtor to those who are before me, to those who are beside me, and I bring the last one in. I've already mentioned several times. I'm definitely in debt to the ones above me. That's God. God had no reason in our comprehension. He had no reason to even create what we have. He certainly had no reason once he created that and made the, those two individuals in the garden who eventually would sin and fall. He had no reason, by our reasoning, no real reason why he had to send Christ to be a propitiation or an atonement for that. He had no reason to do that. Why, if he had treated us like we would treat our children sometimes, and, and granted, there's sometimes hard love needed. I'm not getting into that. But if he treated us like we treat our family members sometimes, it would basically be, well, you blew it, tough luck. Don't come crying to me. I, don't, I can't help you. God helped. He gave us all we needed. Paul said, I'm indebted. I'm a debtor. I'm faithful to the obligation of the gospel. Now, Paul had to give it up to do that. Paul had to stop in his mind and think and say, you know, there is a time in my life when I didn't do right. There's a time in my life when I didn't live right, although he thought he had. He said he did all things in good conscience. And I am now going to have to come back and try to undo some of what I've done. Do you think Paul ever had any sleepless nights where he woke up with nightmares and sweats with a face of Stephen in front of him? I would imagine so. First recorded Christian martyr, and he stood there and gave authority to it. It said he ascended unto his death, and he took the coats of the feet, uh, took those men's coats at his feet. Yeah, he's indebted. Number two, I give it all up for God when I am faithful to the obligation of the gospel. Secondly, I give it all up for God, and it's the next verse. Let's read it together. When I'm flexible with the opportunities of the gospel. He said, I am, this is him speaking according to God, I am debtor both to the Greeks and barbarians. And he says, so as much as me, verse 15, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to them that are in Rome also. It takes flexibility sometimes to handle, and that's just another way of putting it, to handle the opportunities that God gives us. Again, I've been blessed in my life, and this has just been in the last couple of years or so, I began to be in tune, if that's the way to put it, to opportunities. I do not take advantage of all of them. And I oftentimes realize it almost in the moment. But I know that every day for a child of God, such as myself and you, that in itself is an opportunity. That in itself is a point in our lives where most likely, if we think it through, providentially even, God has aligned our lives to affect certain people in certain ways if we take advantage of it. When he says here, I am ready to preach, I am ready to preach the gospel, and then he adds to that, and we'll get to it in a moment, to them that are in Rome also, that's a big thing. That's actually, as we'll mention in a moment, that is a profound statement. He said, I'm ready to preach. You say, wait a minute. You're a gospel preacher. Of course you ought to be ready to preach. 
You ought to be prepared. You ought to be studied. You ought to have a sermon you can use. And, or you ought to be ready for a Bible study. Not because I'm a preacher. Because I'm a Christian. Going about to seek and save the lost was the pattern of our Lord, Luke 19, 10. To spread the gospel in the way that he did, and Paul and all of the others in, in men's sense, women's sense, in their places, is something we have to do. We have to be flexible. I want to give you a scripture just to relate to this for your mind. You'll be so familiar with it. Philippians 1.21. Paul said there, same penman. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You think about that. When it came to Paul's preaching in a literal sense, he was ready to, for example, ready to live. He had lived his life in one manner. He had lived his life after one pattern, which we learn about in Acts 7, 8, and closing up in chapter 9. He recorded that and reminded us of that in Acts chapter 22, also chapter 26. He had lived after that manner. But he didn't realize what he didn't realize then that he would learn is that he had not yet really lived. John 10 and verse 10, I'm just pulling the piece out of it, but contextually it applies nonetheless. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it, that's life, more abundantly. The word there is megos. Is the, at least the prefix of that word as we would understand it. It means that I can live the complete life. I can have zoar, which is life, breath. You see, the truth is people who are outside of Christ are not really even alive. You say, well, they're breathing. Oh, yes, they're thinking. Yes, their hearts are pumping. I'm sure. But they're not alive. It is possible, and you know this, to be dead in a living body. That's dead without Christ. Now, what does it imply? We're talking about being faithful to the opportunities of the gospel. Well, he had to be, first of all, ready to live. Let me ask you this, and I've probably asked this for similar, similar matters for other texts, but what about your life? This is for you, not for your wife or for your neighbor. What about your life makes people jealous? I mean, if your neighbor, and all they know about you sometimes is, well, they, they know that you come and go at certain times of the day. They see you in the yard. You wave, they wave. You've had no conversations, maybe. That's the way things kind of go nowadays. But what about your life have they gotten to know if they've tried, and now they're jealous? So my house is bigger than that. No, not your house, not your car, not your children, not your dog. What about your life? is so notable as a Christian because you are so set apart. You see, Peter says we are peculiar people. Peter says others will even think sometimes that we are strange in that. What's different? If I'm living my life the way that Christ desires me to live it, God desires me to live it, it will be noticed. You know, I've had people before uh, come up to me, you know, you know, Paul even said on one occasion, I bear therefore the marks in my body. I use that as a reflection of this. I've had people before, I've been out in the hospitals and such as that, and, and maybe, and many times when I go to the hospital, I'll dress similar to what I am now. Somebody say, you're a preacher. Yes. Oh, really? What do you preach? I talk, you know, we have a conversation. Friends, if I'm a Christian, I ought to be able to wear rags 
and be recognizable. I don't need a tag. I don't need a badge. You don't need any of that. You don't need anything stamped in your head to be noted as a Christian. Number one, are you ready to live? And that means live for God. Number two, same scripture. For me to live is Christ. But then he said this. This is strange to some people. But yet to die is gain. You say, well, how can how can that work into this? He said, I'm ready to preach. How does that have anything to do with dying? That's what got him killed. That's why he died. He and many of the others of that time, in the modern times even, in the right areas, the right parts of the world. If we're not killed physically, we're, we're put to death, uh, if you will, in society's forms at least. We're degraded, run over, slain as far as our characters. Are you ready to die? Now just take that question the way it is. Are you ready to die? Friends, we're all, I, I had a, a man tell me this one day, I never thought about it. In one sense, we're all terminal. We're humans. Oh, you, you go to the doctor and they give you six months and, or two years or, or three months or a few weeks. I've been in some of those positions. That doesn't really make any difference. If we're ready. Number one, are you ready to die? Let's subhead that a little bit, though. Are you ready to die if you had a choice? You say, well, from the physical sense, no, I'm not ready to die if I had a choice. And as I've reported on more than one occasion, hey, I'm selfish. I want to see my children grow up, be married to my wife for 50 years like some of you are better. I want, I want all the same things you do. I'm not ready to die if I had a choice. No, I mean, if all you had to do was denounce Christ, would you be willing to do that to live? It's not happening in our country right now. We're closer to it than we were probably. If someone burst through these doors with guns or whatever weapons they had and said, do you, are, you, are you a follower of this Christ? Are you, are you after Jesus? You say, yes, you die. You say, no, you walk out. What would you do? Paul said this. He said, I die daily. Spiritually, he's slain. He'd been slain every day because he was giving it up for God. Are you ready to live? Are you ready to die? And you picture Paul, if history is correct, I think that it is. I don't know if the scriptures would go against this at all, but if history is correct, and this is not biblical, it's history. If Paul was in the Mamertine prison in Rome when he was beheaded, that means at some point someone came to him, and I believe this is supported. I believe he had oil poured over his head. They did that often just kind of as a last uh, uh, ceremonial effort to say you're about to lose your life. I think that's what the blood pouring out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 is. But at some point, some jailer, some prison worker, someone came to Paul and said, come on, Paul, we're going. And Paul probably hopped up with a smile on his face, and they said, Paul, we're not going out to lunch, friend. You're going to be beheaded in just a few moments. He said, That's fine. I die daily. Are you serious, Paul? 
This is no good death. You won't be back. I'm all right with that. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Not I, but yet Christ liveth in me. Can you hear him saying that? He has. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to live? Are you ready to go? Now this is back into the real meat here. Look at the verse again, verse 15. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach. Live and die is a part of preaching. But then he says to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome. I'm so appreciative of the next word. Also. The tense there in the original language and expressed here too if you think this thing through it's as if he says, I've been ready to preach everywhere before, but now I'm ready to go to Rome. Now, Rome was a place of death for Paul. He had tried to obtain it on several occasions, not been there. He would go there to be imprisoned, and later it's slain. And he looks to the Romans, and this goes back up to the preceding verse. He's indebted to the, to the Greeks, to the, to the barbarians, the wise men. He looks to the Romans and says, you know what? The Romans as a whole, they're not a Christian people. They've actually subjugated the Jews by this point. They've actually made our lives more difficult. And so Paul looks to them and he says, you know what? I'm so ready to preach. I'd even preach down in Rome. Of course, Paul would go into Corinth. He'd go into Ephesus and other cities likewise, but mainly those three, Ephesus and Corinth and Rome, those are difficult places. Those are hard places to preach. I've got a friend who for years was a missionary in Australia. You say, okay, it's a big deal. There are 12, 12 congregations of our Lord's church in Australia. Friends, there's 12 here in a square mile. In an entire nation, there are 12. Six of the 12 believe a doctrine that you and I could never agree with because it's not found in the Scripture. So there are six. He says in Australia, if someone approaches you and says, I'm a member of the Church of Christ, you know they're lying or not because if they're a member of the Church of Christ in that country, you already know them. Their, their last count was that there were about 220 saints in the country. Friends, that's a hard place to preach. His father-in-law is over the largest congregation in the whole country. It has 90. The rest of those, the balance of them, are scattered all the way across. That's a hard place to preach. Morality is, is out. Ethics are out. Christianity is way out. Paul said, I'd even go to Rome. Are you ready to go? You won't get a phone call in the night from God. You won't ever hear, hear a still, small voice. But if God, through his word, touched your heart, that's what would happen if it were happening, and said, I, I need you to go. Someone may say, I need you to go to another country. I need you to be a missionary. Could you, would you do it? You say, well, I'm not that type. I, hey, I'm not either. My feet work well on the ground. I don't have to fly anywhere. I have, I've never done it. For some purposes, do not intend to. But would you? If you thought about the need in some other place, maybe some other country, some other continent, and you saw the need for you to go, would you be ready to go? Maybe not. 
would you just go across the street? I doubt, and I realize I've been to like Tom Music's house. I remember the church here and there and in this. I doubt very seriously that you live in a neighborhood where every person whose house you can see from any direction is a member of the church and faithful. I doubt it. What that means is you live among the lost. Those who Paul says in the first chapter of Romans also have no hope. No hope in this world without God. Are you ready to go? Thirdly or fourthly, are you ready to stay? Are you ready to live? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to stay? You know, again, I mentioned in passing, Paul had attempted to go to Rome before. He desired to go to Rome on other occasions, but he wasn't able to do that. He even said that Satan had hindered him from going. That the Spirit even, he said, had hindered him. It wasn't lining up providentially. It wasn't that time. He had to accept that. Are you ready to stay? Now, I'll show you how this plays out the most. There have been things in this congregation that have erupted over time that have made it hard to stay here as a part of this local congregation. You know that. I'm not accounting specific things. I do not even know, but I know the average. I know what's typical. I know what is normal and sadly acceptable, and that is that if someone worships here and they're fine and hunky-dory and dandy right where they are, if their feelings get hurt or something doesn't go just their way, the first instinct is to leave. The first instinct. Now, granted, I am not about to worship with any kind of longevity in a congregation that is not functioning according to the pattern of God. I will not. But friends, if someone wrote a piano in here right now and said, I'm about to play, I would not say, go ahead, I'm going down the road. I wouldn't do that either. Or if someone hurt my feelings, I'm not leaving. And neither probably would you. But some have and some will and some do. Friends, the church has split and split and split to the point we can't even recognize it anymore. And that's because we, me, we will not stick anything out. You think the church at Ephesus and Rome here ever gave Paul a hard time? Yes! You want to find Paul? He wasn't down at the local coffee shop. He was either in the synagogue and more likely he was already in prison by the time you knew he was in town. He wasn't worshiping with perfect people. He had to set his mind to say, I'm going to stay. Oh, he wanted to be other places. He wanted perhaps to do other things. But he had to say, I'm going to stay. Why, Paul? Because he was faithful to the obligation of the gospel. He in the same manner was flexible to the opportunities of the gospel. And this one plays right into that hand. He was also fearless. Fearless in the opposition of the gospel. That's this last verse of what we're reading. 
Verse 16, for I am not ashamed. That's in the emphatic, really. I'm not even reading it right. He would probably cry out with the loudest voice he had, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why, Paul? For it, the gospel, is the power of God and the salvation. To who, Paul? To everyone that believe it. To the Jew first and even also to the Greeks. The people I like and I live with and I grew up with and the people I've always despised. God died on a cross as the Son for them. And I'm not ashamed of that. We sometimes cower down out of shame. I can remember as a teenager, and I was not a Christian. I was not a Christian at this point. But I knew how to be one, and I probably I ought to be one. But I can remember as a teenager walking across the Mudford Church of Christ parking lot over and over and over again. It's not one instance I remember. This is a lifestyle. I remember walking across that parking lot. We built the new building, so now you basically park way over there. You had to get around the other buildings. And I remember walking across that parking lot and seeing a lot of my friends from high school pull up. There's a four-way stop right there by the school. And they would look to see me, and I would do everything to be sure they didn't see me. And sometimes they would holler like teenagers do, and I wouldn't holler back. And sometimes they would say, I think I saw you in front of that church. And I'd say, no, you didn't. Shame. Shame. Not just shame, shame on me. You say, well, I wouldn't do that. Well, you're an adult. You may have made it past that. I've made it past that, I hope. I'm giving you my situations. I used to take my lunch breaks. This is the job I got fired from. I used to take my lunch breaks. I would go back into my office and close the door and read my Bible. If that door rattled, no, it should have been laying right there. That's shame. You are ashamed of God's word if you will not present it if you will, in front of someone. This, Austin knows what I'm talking about. David knows the story too. Although David wasn't there, I don't think, that night. Valdosta, Georgia, Austin and I and a third party go to Huddle House. The Huddle House or one at Waffle House? Nine o'clock at night after services. Of course, we're going to do what we would do you're about to eat a meal. You thank God for that. The third party, not he or I, but the third party, whom I didn't know at the time, he said, I'll say the prayer. I said, that's fine. This fellow stood up. And he prayed as loud as I'm talking right now in Huddle House. And he silenced that place. You know what I would have done? Dear God, we're so thankful. It's wonderful. Come on. I'm not talking about being a show out. I'm not talking about pride. I'm talking about the difference between shame and not being ashamed. Paul wasn't ashamed of this. Because, friends, if you're ashamed of this, you're ashamed of Christ himself. 
He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why is that? Why would Paul be ashamed? What are the reasons for Paul's shame? How well do you think it would go? It went over. When Paul walked into, it doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile at that point in time, because to a Jew, he was a turncoat, a traitor. To the Gentile, they never liked him to start with. But say he walked into some of these pharisaical type Jews who, who believed in God and religion but didn't believe in Christ. And he comes in, he said, let me tell y'all a story. Let me tell you a story of a Jewish man who was born a pauper in a manger amongst the animals whose mother, strangely enough, was a virgin, if you can understand that, who lived his life without a home, without a place to lay his head, wandered across these valleys and these deserts as you see them now, gathered 12 men with him who followed his every bidding, performed supposed, and I'm using their terms maybe, supposed miracles, and was killed on a cross for your sins. First of all, if he were a Jew, the Gentiles didn't like him. If he were a Jew and a poor Jew, the Jews didn't like him. If he were a Jew and a poor Jew who wandered around without a place to stay, the Jewish leaders certainly did not enjoy that. If he claimed to be a king, that was worse. If he died on the cross, they quoted very quickly, cursed is every man who hangeth upon a tree. And if he messed around and told them he was the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised of God, who died on their behalf, no way they believed that as a whole. Could Paul have been ashamed? Friends, it is, it's amazing to me. And I'm looking at preachers when I say this. It's amazing to me how bold we are on a Sunday morning and Sunday night to be such cowards on Monday morning. And that goes for Christians too. Because we all are. It's incomprehensible. Inconceivable. That's the reason for shame. But friends, I'm telling you, he was fearless in the opposition of the gospel because he had reasons for sharing too. They're all in the text. Look back at verse 16. He first of all says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of, next word, Christ. Friends, there's a person. The person of Christ is every bit reason to be bold. The person of Christ who died, the anointed one, the Messiah, as I just referred to him, that is in itself enough reason to have boldness and not shame. And friends, if you believe who Jesus really was, and you honestly know that, you would share it too. I would share it also. There's the person. That's the reason for sharing. Number next. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, what is that? The gospel of Christ. He says in that, uh, to this, uh, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, to everyone that believeth. Now, what's that? That's the people. The reason for sharing here is based upon the person Christ, but it's also based upon the people, everyone that wants to believe. Everyone that has an inkling about them, that has a mind about them, that has the provision about them to even know of this, those people are important. 
Is it going to take the clods falling on my neighbor's casket for me to wake up one day and say, you know what, I should have had a little talk with him. I should have spent a little more time with him outside of whatever recreation we might be involved. I had a neighbor in Philadelphia, Mississippi. I call him the world's greatest neighbor. I could tell you why, but I won't. He and I talked over the fence just like in that old show, um, Home, Home Time with Tim the Two-Man Taylor and the mysterious neighbor that you never saw. That's how we talked, over the fence. We probably had in five years three religious discussions. Whose fault is that? person standing in these shoes he's a person because of the people because of the Christ himself the person because of the people to whom we teach because also the purpose he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation it's for the purpose of salvation you're not talking to someone about how to bake a cake how to catch the largest bass or kill the biggest deer. You're not talking about that. We're talking about their life. We're talking about their death and what will come after their death. The result of it. It's too important. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He says, for it is the power. I'm talking about the power of the gospel. That's the reason for sharing. The Bible tells us that the power... It's from some Acts 4.11. The power comes so far as to being even the dividing asunder of both soul and marrow and soul, I mean, bone and marrow and then soul and spirit. It says it's like a two-edged sword that can cut to those dividings. The Greek word here is the Greek word, and you've heard this before behind the word power, dunamis. Nine out of ten people will tell you that's where we get our English word dynamite. And if you study the etymology, that's a big fancy word to say the, the uh, roots of words, that is true. But let me tell you something about that. We use dynamite to destroy, not to build. And if we say that the power of the gospel is like dynamite, we're saying we're here to blow something out of somebody. And we're not. Unless we mean the sin in their life. Friends, I couldn't strap enough physical dynamite underneath my shirt tonight. I could, I could, I could level the block. But I couldn't take one sin out of you or myself with that. But God can. We have the person, we have the people. We have the purpose, we have the power. Look at the last one here. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the G first, and also the Greek. That's the plan. It is for every man. Sometimes you say or you hear say, he's the man behind the plan. Yes, that's, that relates here perfectly because it's not my plan. It's Christ's plan. It's what he desires. Let me ask you this in review. I'm not talking about, if, I'm not asking if you're a Christian. That comes in a moment. Even if you are a Christian, have you given it, whatever it is, all up for God? To the point 
But yes, you, you're faithful to the obligation of the gospel. There won't be another person in your life that you don't try to reach. To the point that you're going to be flexible with those opportunities. You ever seen anyone have a flat tire? I baptized a man with a flat tire one day. I was in my suit when I changed his tire. On the way home from worship. What an opportunity I could have missed. And how many have I? And more than that, are you fearless in the opposition of the gospel? We're not being opposed in these days and in our time the way that perhaps they were in our nation at least. But if we were, would I stand? You know, the thing is, and I, I didn't ask anybody, and I'm not saying change anything, but the thing is, if we were to be singing in a moment the, uh, the invitations on Jesus saves, you know how true that is? Jesus saves us. No one else. No other way. Just him. He saves us as far as we need to go, which is to eternity. Back around the time of the Depression, of course, this is before telephones were readily available necessarily. It could have been, but, you know, that's when you ran to the store to call or what have you. And a man was out working in his fields, and he looked across the hills there, and he saw smoke coming from the hills. And he panicked because of that. He didn't know, but he knew that meant a neighbor's home and, or fields were on fire and they needed help. And so he ran toward that smoke. And when he got far enough, he looked and he noticed it was more important than that to him at least. It was his children and they were inside that schoolhouse. And he looked into that schoolhouse through the smoke of course, the crowds had gathered. They were doing all they could, carrying the buckets and tossing, but the fire had engulfed the whole place. And the word was being spoken that no one had escaped. But you see, he's the boy's daddy. He wants to know more. He runs toward the door. People pull him back. They try to stop him. They can't stop him. He's going in. He breaks inside the flames and inside the smoke. And he realizes quickly there is nothing he can do. And he falls back. He kind of came to himself for just a second and he heard these words. Daddy, save me. Daddy, please save me. And he knew that was the cry of his boy. There was nothing he could do. There will be people, and there are, who are crying right now to society and they're saying, save me. They're crying to science and they're saying, save me. They're crying to this culture and they're saying, save me. Society can't save them. They may teach them how to drink a glass of coffee or tea properly. They're on the saucer. Science may tell them how far it is from the earth to the sun. 
and our culture may tell them that they are too different. But they'll never be saved by it. Jesus saves. And if he has saved my soul, and he saved yours, or even has desired to do so, depending on our status, he's worth giving it up for. Have you given your life to God initially through faith? That is to imply, to lean upon, to imply, to imply also to trust. Do you have enough faith in God to know he can save you? Are you willing to repent? We didn't touch top, side, or bottom, the repentance of Paul, but that's his, his whole life from that point forward. Are you willing to confess his name? If you're not ashamed, you are. You'll confess it loudly and often. Are you willing to be baptized? That's not necessarily in this text, although it can be found easily in a few chapters. Romans 6, 3, and 4 describes baptism. It's similar to a death, burial, and a resurrection. We're to come up in newness of life. Chapter 6, verse 3, 4, 5, 23. Are you willing to be baptized into Christ tonight? Why? For the forgiveness of sins. As I often say, I don't know, I'm trying to come up with a different word, and I can't, but most likely, in an audience such as this, this evening, most of us are Christians. But have we given everything we have up for God? Would we? Because in a very spiritual sense, we have to. You may obtain your riches and your wealth and your careers, but have you given that over to God? And at least seen that as a blessing from Him? If not, why not? Why not make corrections in your life if they're needed? If you're embarking on a new day, you say, well, Brandon's coming. I'm not talking about Brandon coming. If you're embarking on a new day that can begin right now, why not make changes if necessary? Why not, while together we stand and sing this chosen song?